Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. The word of God. For the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Last week, I hinted that this week we'll be looking at the authorship of the letter of 1 Timothy in order to better understand how we should approach this letter. The reason that I want to do that this week is because something interesting is about to happen in the lectionary readings for this letter. The lectionary is about to have us jump over most of the letter. Where the lectionary would have had us stop today is at verse 7 of chapter 2 so that the last line that we would have read would have been, for this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then next week we will pick up all the way at chapter six, verse six, which begins, of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. But what we miss in the three and a half chapters that gets cut from the lectionary is significant. And so this is why I wanted us to read a little further today, so that we could get just a taste of what the lectionary will not address. So in those extra eight verses that I read, what did we see? In every place men should pray, Women should dress modestly and perform good works, but they should be silent 
and under no circumstances are they to teach or to have authority over a man. Why? Because the role of women is to bear children, and through this role they will receive their redemption. As it does so many times throughout the Bible, the lectionary chooses to omit the texts that are difficult instead of challenging us to deal with them. It's not just in this letter that this happens, but in fact, much of Revelation is removed from the lectionary, much of the prophets and the histories. In fact, in general, the Old Testament just doesn't fare very well in the lectionary. Anything that might cast antagonists in the story of God in a negative, albeit human light, is simply ignored. So what else do we see omitted from the letter of 1 Timothy? There are instructions about the kind of person who's qualified to be a bishop or a deacon, instructions to pastors, instructions to let families take care of widows because that isn't the church's problem. If someone's widowed at a young age, we're instructed to give them no sympathy at all. My personal favorite, we're told that those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double compensation. Instructions on ordination, instructions on how to conduct a church trial, and finally, instructions to slaves to submit to their masters, laboring especially hard if their masters happen to be Christians. Now somewhere in all of that, there should be things that we find difficult to read. I imagine that we can all agree that slavery, no matter what form it takes, is not the intention that God has for any human being. As United Methodists, we should all be able to agree that there is a place for women to preach and teach in the church. And knowing how many of you are teachers, I would imagine that you would also agree that there is a place outside the church for women to teach as well. In fact, given the nature of our educational system, I would wager that there is not a single person in this room who has never at any point learned from a teacher who was a woman. So what do we do when the Bible presents us with verses or entire chapters like what we've just witnessed? When we read something in scripture that seems difficult to us, how do we respond? I can tell you the response that a lot of people have. They just throw the whole thing out. And maybe these are people who have been devoted Christians for their entire lives. This summer we saw several leaders of megachurches or influential Christian worship groups renouncing the faith that they had. I don't want to use this moment to call anyone out by name. If you really want to know more, you can find it on the internet easy enough. But I do want us to hear the words of some of these folks so that we can understand why they left. One worship leader who has described his faith as being on seriously shaky ground wrote on Instagram, this is a soapbox moment. So here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? 
no one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Another megachurch pastor shared his confession on Twitter. He wrote about growing up in a hyper-fundamentalist form of Christianity. He describes his dedication to scripture by writing, I was fully devoted to studying the scriptures. I think I missed maybe 12 Sundays in 40 years. I had completely memorized 18 books of the Bible and was reading through the Bible for the 24th time when I walked away. And he explains that he walks away because this massive cognitive dissonance, my beliefs not matching with reality, created a separation between my head and my heart. I was gaslighting myself to stay in the faith. Eventually, I could not maintain the facade anymore. I started to have mental and emotional breaks. My internal stress started to show in physical symptoms. Being a pastor, a professional Christian, was killing me. Now I know that none of us wants to be the person that encounters difficulty in the Bible and resorts to throwing it away. But I also know that these major faith leaders also never wanted to be that person either. And that no one around them would have expected them to be that person. And I know that beyond not wanting to be that person, we want to be the kind of people that can give others the skills that they need to not walk away entirely either. But if you live in a Christian worldview like they did, where every word of the Bible has to be read literally, what other choice do you have when you start to notice the contradictions? Well, we could do the next closest thing and just toss out the parts that we don't like. That seems to be the choice that the lectionary makes. And if we're honest, that's the choice that most people make without even meaning to do so. The Bible is a big book made of lots of books, and it's easy enough for us to just hunt around and find the things that we agree with. Thomas Jefferson might be one of the most famous examples of this kind of practice. He constructed his own version of the New Testament by simply removing any of the supernatural elements that didn't square with his Enlightenment worldview, including the miracles performed by Jesus and his very resurrection. I'll admit that this is probably the path of least resistance for us as an individual, but I would also argue that it's the path that is the least respectful of the scriptures. It's a way of reading the scriptures that lets us make religion in our own image instead of challenging us to grow into the image of God. The scriptures do not agree with each other. This is not a judgment, it's simply a statement of fact. 
In our Latin membership class, we looked at one of the most obvious examples of this truth, the beginning of Genesis. Not only do individual books of the Bible disagree with each other, but sometimes a book can disagree with itself. We see in Genesis that there are two creation stories, and we see that they fundamentally disagree with each other. Which brings us back to our question, what do we do about this? Do we hold, throw the whole thing out? Plenty of people do. I personally know people who've tried to give the Bible a chance, and maybe they make it past these first two chapters, but usually somewhere in the teens of Genesis, they give up on it. Or do we just pick the part that we like? Plenty of people do. Plenty of people like the part where it says male and female, he created them, so they keep that bit. And other people like the part about God making woman from man's rib. The author of 1 Timothy probably did, so they keep that part. But then they toss aside whichever parts don't fit with what they already believe. So what do we do? What do we do about the contradictions? What do we do about the parts that we don't like? What do we do? We step outside our comfort zones, and we face the whole thing head on. And when I say the whole thing, I mean the whole thing. All the uncomfortable parts, all the parts that are near and dear to our hearts, all the parts that click with us right away, and all the parts that leave us scratching our heads. Because the only way for us to be honest and truthful about the nature of Scripture is to immerse ourselves in it and to approach the whole thing together. John Wesley talks about this in terms of the scope and tenor of Scripture. He instructs us that if we are to read the Bible well, we cannot look at one line here and one line there to build our case. We must look for the themes that flow through the whole work. And so what if we do this? What if we start to read the parts that we've never really paid much attention to before? And what if we realize that even the themes of Scripture disagree with each other sometimes? We would seem to be back at square one, but now on a much larger scale. And it's a bit unfortunate that some of our major figures like Paul and Wesley were both practical theologians, that they did not sit down and write everything out for us, because we have to do our best after the fact to try and reconstruct their process. And what has been devised is the somewhat poorly named Wesleyan quadrilateral. We do indeed sit down to read scripture. This is the primary source of our understanding of God's self-revelation. But we rely on more than that too. We learn about God from our tradition. We learn about God from our ability to reason. We learn about God from our own life experiences and the life experiences of others. And when we bring all of these elements into conversation around the scripture, we start to develop the toolkit that we need to be able to handle scripture when it gets difficult without throwing it all away. By tradition, we enter into a conversation that spans through the ages. We learn from the communion of saints who have gone before us. We're shown how to read the Bible through the eyes of mystics and scholars, reformers and conservers, 
the powerful and the meek. By reason, we are able to think critically about the words on the page. It's the use of reason that aids the translators who work with the original languages of the texts. It's reason that lets us uncover the history of the people who wrote the scriptures. It's reason that lets us understand the different arguments within the text in order to identify the themes. And by our experience, we come to know scripture within our hearts and our souls. We each come to the text with our own experience, just as the authors of the text came to it with their own experiences. And who we are and how we got to where we are in life are just as valid a tool to understanding God as tradition and reason. But we have to keep in mind that the experiences of others are just as valid as our own. And all of what I've said is better summed up by someone else. The Reverend Rachel May from Virginia preached on the Gospel of Luke at this point three years ago in the lectionary. If you go back and reread today's lesson from Luke, you'll see that it's the kind of text that needs some wrestling. And she said, we believe that the writers of the Bible were inspired and that they were filled with God's spirit as they wrote the truth to the best of their knowledge. We believe that reading the Bible is about more than the words on the page, that biblical literacy involves some critical thinking about what we are reading. Now I told you that I was going to talk about the authorship of this letter but I wanted us to all get to why it matters before I addressed it. Paul did not write this letter. Timothy did not receive it. This letter was written by a bishop in the second or third century to another bishop. How do we know this? Well, first of all, has anyone who's telling the truth ever had to stop mid-sentence to say, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, but more seriously, there's no record of these writings until well after Paul's death, nor is there any archaeological evidence for them. There's a distinct lack of Pauline language. In fact, what is expressed today seems to run contrary to the teachings of Paul, who frequently greeted women as leaders of the movement, who declared that in Christ there is no male or female, no slave or freed. Indeed, the language and the concerns of this letter are the concerns of a church establishing itself as an institution, not the ragtag band of misfits that Paul was organizing. This is a letter written by someone with power and privilege within an institution, working to secure that power and privilege. These are the things that reason tells us about this letter. But accepting this reality, as we've just heard, does not mean that we have to throw out the whole thing. We've just heard how tradition and experience shape our understanding of scripture. And here we have an example of someone engaging in that very process. Here we have a bishop whose experiences have led him to wrestle with the scripture and to ask, what is the church of God supposed to look like? 
This is his answer to that question. And we see that he's engaging with the tradition, whatever that meant in the early days of the church, by using Paul's name. He's making a claim that the things that he is saying are in line with the teachings of Paul. Whether we disagree with the author of 1 Timothy about the role of women or slaves in society, there is still truth in this letter. There is the truth that God's story has always been a human story. The truth that we are a part of a faith that does not demand blind obedience, but expects loving questioning and conversation with God and with one another. The truth that God's people have never had the perfect answer and that it's okay for us to not have it either. The truth that God is always inviting us deeper into the word than we have been before. The truth, the capital T truth of God could never be fully captured in between the covers of the Bible or any other book. But when we know how to read it, we will know that we are moving in the right direction and that we are moving there right alongside the authors. Amen. Please pray with me. True God from true God, light from light, divine word, logos. Lead us ever deeper into your truth. Show us the ways of your righteousness and give us the courage to go beyond ourselves. Stretch us, make us uncomfortable, for it's only in our discomfort that we find the room to grow. Lead us on to perfection as you are perfect. Amen. <laughs>